What does a pulmonary embolism and an oil field with sludge have in common? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. Laser Greenfield. Dr. Greenfield is former professor and chairman of the Department of Surgery at the University of Michigan School of Medicine, and since retiring from this role, he served as Interim Executive Vice President for Medical Affairs and Interim CEO of the University of Michigan Health System as well as consultant to the FDA and to the Medical Product Surveillance Network, as well as editor-in-chief of Surgery News and the American College of Surgeons web portal. Dr. Greenfield has published hundreds of book chapters and peer-reviewed articles, as well as two major textbooks on surgery. Perhaps, however, he is most well-known for the Greenfield Filter. Welcome, Dr. Greenfield. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be with you. Today we are discussing the Greenfield Filter. Dr. Greenfield, tell us the history of the Greenfield Filter and what gave you the idea to develop this. The concept of trying something new for pulmonary embolism really came from a patient disaster rather than anything that was particularly skillful. I was a young graduate just out of training and was responsible on occasion for dealing with trauma patients. I had a a young man after a motorcycle accident who developed massive pulmonary embolism and my training led me to take him to the operating room for an open pulmonary embolectomy which was successful technically but he died and it was a very frustrating outcome. At the time I was working with a petroleum engineer Mr. Garman Kimmel, uh, with whom I had tried to establish uh, an ability to measure pulmonary surface tension. We were interested in pulmonary surfactant. But when I mentioned this particular problem of clots migrating in the system, he said that it sounded very much like the problem in the oil field with sludge. What happens is that uh, sludge gets into the valves of the pipes in the oil system, and then the pipes have to be dug up. And he said to address that problem, they utilize a cone-shaped trap. And when I asked him why, he said it's simply the geometry of a cone. You can fill it to 70% of its depth, and the pipeline stays open because you haven't interfered with cross-sectional area to any significant degree. So with that concept, we sat down and I began to draw what I thought would be required to fix such a shape uh, into the vascular system. We started with animals and then were able to convince our local review committee to allow us to test the concept in patients after we had proof of principle uh, in animal outcomes. Was that difficult to do to a live patient? Fortunately, at the time, we, we were well before the era of FDA's involvement with devices. When was that, sir? This was in the late 1960s, early 1970s. And so the FDA had not established itself as responsible for medical devices. I think it would have been much more difficult at the time if we were faced with a, an entirely new approach to control pulmonary embolism with a device such as this. And what happened and how did you do this? 
what happened was we began to put the device in patients. And a little bit more behind the story, I had spent a couple of years at the NIH during my training and was very comfortable with cardiac catheterization because I was in the cardiac unit. And so in dealing with the problem of pulmonary embolism, I had also talked Mr. Kimmel into fashioning a cup that I could attach to the end of a catheter to pull clots out of the pulmonary artery. And as we did that, we were able to resuscitate a number of patients who were in shock, and actually we saved a large number. That was a little too early for the endovascular era. It required the assistance of fluoroscopy and radiology, so uh, surgeons were not very comfortable with the process of doing that from a remote incision, and radiologists weren't comfortable with the idea that they would have to cut down on a vessel, so nobody really picked up on the technique. But as we accumulated favorable experience, patients did well except for those who had recurrent embolism, and that was the further motivation to develop this device in a way that we could insert it by catheter at the time that we did the pulmonary embolectomy. And then, of course, we found many more patients who were candidates for the device but who had not sustained pulmonary embolism. If you have just joined us, you are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, professor of surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and with me today is renowned surgeon, professor, teacher, author, and inventor, Dr. Laser Greenfield. Today we are discussing the Greenfield filter. Dr. Greenfield, you spoke about your experience with the Trendelenburg procedure on that first patient and then developing your filter, the Greenfield filter. Were we still doing at the time IVC ligations to prevent pulmonary emboli? Yes, that was a common practice, although there was another device on the market, the Mobinudin umbrella. But that particular device had a couple of problems. It tended to occlude the cava because it was very restrictive of flow. And so I was really not happy with an intervention that would eventually lead to occlusion of the cava. It seemed like too high a price to pay. So I was much more interested in a system that would allow a continued patency of the cava. That turned out to have an additional benefit in that we were able to show that the clot would actually resolve over time. And that was completely unexpected because when I asked my hematology colleagues, they told me there was no way that the clot would resolve unless it was in contact with the wall. Uh, but fortunately, the patients didn't know that. Now, if you look at the Greenfield filter physically, it looks like there would be many spots where the clot would be able to go through the filter and go forward into the circulation. Yes, it's true that orifices remain so that if clots are three millimeters in diameter or less, uh, they can get through. Fortunately, those are not clinically significant events. The clots that we worry about are the clots that are generally well-organized and tend to be free-floating in the venous system of the lower extremity and vena cava. So going back to the history, when you first started putting these in, what was your experience like? Well, we did not have an ideal carrier catheter. We had a device that would occasionally allow filters to detach in the iliac veins instead of the vena cava. And so we needed to improve upon that, which we did over time. But what made advances really possible was that 
a gentleman in the early era of medical device development uh, named John Abley uh, came to a meeting of the American Heart Association where I was presenting the results of the catheter pulmonary embolectomy along with the filter. And he was very attracted to the idea of the catheter device, but said he was perfectly willing to take the filter along with it, although he wasn't sure it would have any practical value. Uh, that company ultimately became Boston Scientific. Huh. And the success that they enjoyed was primarily from the filter and not from the catheter device. Were you personally pleased with the early results? I was never satisfied uh, with the early results. I constantly strove to be sure that we had better ways of inserting it and uh, controlling its position because anytime you put a device out for a variety of users, you're going to have people who are less skilled at manipulation of uh, devices endovascularly. And so they really need to have a device that is almost, if you will, idiot-proof. Did you have any problems early on with significant complications? No. The remarkable thing is that the body is so tolerant of wire-based devices. Even though some were misplaced uh, into the heart, uh, some were misplaced into the pulmonary circulation, there were very few problems associated with that. And of course, hundreds of thousands of them have been inserted now, and the problems are still anecdotal. The one interesting issue now is a report that generated a lot more enthusiasm than it deserved that suggested that patients who have filters have higher rates of venous thrombosis. Uh, and that study really needs to be examined closely because the data ultimately did not support that conclusion. So patients who have the Greenfield filter do not develop thrombosis of their IVC? Not unless the filter traps a very large clot or the patients have such a severe prothrombotic tendency that they are totally uh, unable to dissolve the entrapped thrombus. Where do you like to place the Greenfield filter ideally? Ideally, it's just below the level of the renal veins, but we are quite comfortable placing it higher in the vena cava if necessary to control clot that is coming out of the renal or ovarian veins. How does it stay in place? There are small hooks that secure it. Of course, the popular thing today is retrievable filters. But if you look at it from an engineering standpoint, in order to have a retrievable device, you have to have a device that is less secure in the vena cava, and therefore you do pay a price in security. You mentioned that there were some instances where the filter was in the heart. I'm just curious, how did it get there? Individuals would insert the device and either misinterpret its position or accidentally discharge it uh, into the right atrium. How did you handle that complication? I developed a technique to actually retrieve and manipulate the device either back into the cava or to remove it, usually to manipulate and insert it further distally into the vena cava. Once these devices lodge into place, isn't it almost impossible to dislodge them without causing disruption of the vessels itself? It becomes more difficult with the passage of time because of endothelial overgrowth that tends to secure them to the wall of wherever they happen to be. But the devices can be folded back down and replaced uh, in other locations. Do you ever put a second Greenfield filter in? 
yes, under circumstances where the first one has filled up, we've had a number of instances and reported on our experience with second filters. They have performed very well. These are almost always above the level of the renal veins. And unless the individual is in the process of dying from something like terminal malignancy, the outcomes are generally quite favorable. I want to thank Dr. Laser Greenfield, who has been our guest. We have been discussing the Greenfield Filter. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to check out our website at www.reachmd.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.